to my voice, it's a bit bit croaky at the minute, but hopefully we'll uh, we'll get there. <clears throat> yeah, so if you haven't met me before, my name's Sam. I'm a member here at um, Redeemer, part of the Central Chawton uh, Missional Community Group. And uh, yeah, we're going to take a, a break from Matthew's Gospel this morning. Um, Greg asked me to preach on kind of whatever was on my heart, really. And this passage um, that I'm preaching on today is something that just spoke to me as I was reading through the Bible uh, this year, really kind of jumped out to me <clears throat> as something that was really important to myself and I thought it would be great to, to preach on, uh, to encourage us. Uh, so do you feel weak? Do you feel afraid? Do you feel anxious? Um, do you feel discouraged? I think those kind of moods kind of really capture our culture at the moment, don't they? Uh, we've had, um, over the last few years, a lot of disruption. We've had the COVID pandemic, and with all the the horrible disruption that came from that, people losing their loved ones, people suffering great illness. And along with that, we've had like this awful mental health crisis in our country and around the world, people really struggling uh, with anxiety, depression. Uh, and then since then, we've had even more stuff going on. The war in Ukraine, people are worried about um, how it's going to escalate, what could happen. And then the the cost of living in this country as well has gone up. That's causing a lot of people stress, anxiety, how they're going to pay the bills, um, how they're going to feed their children. Fear, anxiety and discouragement are, are common human experiences, uh, whether we're Christian or not. We live in a fallen world tainted by sin. So whoever you are, whether you follow Christ or not, this message is for you. Um, what I'm going to talk about if you take it seriously and take it on board, it will help you to deal with um, all of those problems that I've just mentioned. Um, how can we overcome? Where do we put our hope and our confidence? Uh, but I think this message has particular um, application for us as Christians. See, as Christians, we, there are lots of things that we fear and have anxiety about that people who aren't Christians don't have. So as Christians, we, we know we've been saved from our sin by Jesus and we have a, a great awareness of our sin and we struggle with sin, don't we? And sometimes that can just really get us down, the, the doubt that it causes, maybe the, the lack of assurance that we have or just the, you know, the frustration at the lack of progress that we're making in our battle against sin. We have um, anxiety and fear about our, our unsaved friends and family People that don't follow Christ, you know, what's going to happen to them? Will they ever follow him? Maybe we get really down about our own efforts with um, evangelism and mission. Um, maybe we just don't feel very good at it. It kind of gets us down and discouraged. And I think even more and more um, nowadays, we feel hemmed in from the culture around us. What we believe, what we find that the Bible teaches doesn't align with what the world believes so we feel a lot of pressure from culture, don't we? Pressure to conform, or maybe we get kind of very defensive and fearful about, about the culture. Um, that's how I feel. I feel weak and discouraged. Uh, maybe you look at me up at the front and think, oh, Sam's got it all sorted out. Well, I can tell you, I'll let you into a little secret, that isn't true. I feel weak and discouraged a lot of the time. I struggle with my own sin. Um, I struggle with just uh, the normal things of life. I sometimes think at work, people are going to eventually realise that I don't know what I'm doing and I'm not making <laughs> up my job. I fear, I have fear and anxiety about different things. I feel weak 
And I think that's one of the reasons why um, this chapter, 2 Chronicles 32, really spoke to me. Because God knows that we're weak and discouraged. And he knows that we need to, to be encouraged. And that's exactly um, the message of verse 7 and 8. Um, Hezekiah speaks to encourage um, the nation um, when they're attacked by this enemy. He says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him. For there is a greater power with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people gained confidence from what Hezekiah, the king of Judah, said. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. And actually, if we, if we look at the Bible, that message, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, if we count up all the times that that occurs in the Bible, I'm told it occurs around 365 times, about there or thereabouts. That's enough for every day of the year. So I think this is a message that God wants us to hear. We need to be reminded of it every day. And that got me thinking, maybe because we need to be reminded of it, why not this week try and memorise verses 7 and 8? Uh, when I was reading through this a few months ago, I thought, you know, those verses are great to memorise. And that's what I did. I memorised those verses. And that meant that they've been with me as I go through each day, reminding me where my courage lies, where my strength lies. So what we're going to do in the sermon is really just unpack verses seven and eight um, to understand what it means for us today and I've got three headings uh, great we have a great enemy we have a great God and we have a great king so first of all great enemy uh, uh, so what's the context of these verses uh, well we're in Judah which is um, kind of the, the southern tribe of Israel. Uh, by this point, the, the nation of Israel has been divided into, down at the south, we have the tribe of Judah. And then in the north, confusingly, that's just called Israel by itself. But here we're, we're talking about Judah. And Hezekiah is the king of Judah. Um, if we read through two chronicles and one chronicles, we'll realize that Judah and Israel had had some pretty bad kings. But every so often, a good king came along. And Hezekiah was a good king. That's what we read about um, at the start of our reading, chapter 31, verse 20. Uh, this is what Hezekiah did throughout Judah, doing what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. In everything that he undertook in the service of God's temple and in obedience to the law and the commands, he sought his God and worked wholeheartedly. And so he prospered. And here we get a glimpse of what God's people should be like. Righteousness, faithfulness, obedience, uh, life under God's blessing. Things are going well. But then disaster strikes. Chapter, two, verse 30, uh, uh, sorry, chapter 32, verse 1. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. He wanted to conquer them. God's people have an enemy. Uh, but maybe at this point you're thinking, um, well, what has this got to do with me? Uh, this just looks like ancient history. Uh, it's several hundred years before Jesus came. What relevance does it have? Well, at one level, you are right. This is ancient history. 
But at a deeper level, this is really just one episode in a much bigger story. You see, when we look at the whole Bible, we, we, we notice that there are lots of themes uh, and strands that run from start to finish. And one of those themes, strands, is kind of a, an ongoing conflict between God's family and the family of Satan. And we see that right at the start of the Bible in Genesis 3. What do we read about this mysterious serpent who, who we can identify as Satan? This serpent tempted Adam and Eve to disobey God. Uh, and that led to the fall with all of its effects. Uh, but after that event, we see these words in Genesis 3.15. Um, and this is really God speaking a curse to this serpent, but it also contains a promise for God's people. God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And this is what we see played out throughout the Bible. We see it played out in history. Uh, the offspring of the woman ultimately refers to, to Jesus Christ. He is the one who will crush the serpent's head. But in another sense, the offspring can refer to all of God's people. So we see here there will be this enmity between God's people and Satan, the devil, and all of Satan's um, minions, all his workers, his family. At the moment, this battle is ongoing. We're in this battle with the devil. And 2 Chronicles 32 is really just one example of that bigger battle that's going on throughout the whole of history. So when we look at Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, don't just look at a figure from ancient history. No, look at a representation of Satan and how he is attacking God's people today. So that's what we're going to think about, you know, as we read through these verses what do, we, what do we learn about this battle? What is Satan like? What is he trying to do to us today? And we're going to look uh, at three things um, about him. Uh, firstly, Satan is a false god. He sets himself up in the place of God. He is um, a blasphemer, um, doing disservice to the name of God. Just look at um, the attitude of Sennacherib in these verses. Um, he is uh, obsessed with himself, verse 1. He wants to conquer Judah for himself. Um, later on, um, verses 13 to 15, he, he sets himself up against God. He says, how can your God deliver you from my hand? He's setting up this battle, thinking he's better than God. And he thinks he's more powerful than God, um, verse, verse 17. He even writes a letter ridiculing the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, just as the gods of the people of the other lands did not rescue their people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah will not rescue his people from my hand. He thinks he's more powerful. He is arrogant and he is ultimately wanting people to worship him. And Satan is just like that. Uh, we're going through Matthew's gospel at the moment and soon we're going to get to, to chapter 4 where um, Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And what is one of the things that Satan says um, in, in, that, in that chapter? 
Uh, we see um, Matthew 4, verses 8 and 9. The devil took him, Jesus, to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, Satan said, if you will bow down and worship me. That's what Satan wants. He wants people to worship him, but he is a false god. He's a false god, but the sad thing is that most people worship him, even if they don't know it. Uh, if we look in the New Testament, um, Satan is described as the god of this world. Think about that. Satan is the god of this world. People are actually, in some sense, worshipping Satan, doing what he wants in, in all manner of different ways. And we see that because the world is, is in the grip of his power and influence. Um, when we look around us, we don't always think of that. Um, we see, maybe we look out at Chorth and stuff looks really happy um, and stuff all the time. But actually, um, Satan is the god of this world. And, and that's ultimately why we see so much horror and degeneration in the world. And we read in the, in the Bible that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they don't see God, so that they can't see the glory of Christ. Um, he's a God of this world, but he isn't the true God. He's an imitation God. Uh, just as a side note, it's kind of easy for us to look at Sinatra in these verses and think, what an idiot. Uh, don't you know that you'll never win? God is eventually going to destroy you. But actually, we act like Sinatra a lot of the time, don't we? In fact, most of the time. See, we live as if God is irrelevant, as if we are in charge. Um, every time we sin, we commit blasphemy against God's name. We say to God, I don't really care about what you think. I don't care about your commandments. I'd rather just do what I want to do. So we are uh, complicit in the sin of Sinatrib. We need um, to be rescued because just like Sinatrib, deserve to die. We deserve to die. We need to be rescued. Otherwise, we'll be destroyed, just like he was. Um, so Satan is a false god, and he is also a murderer. Um, Jesus said that he was a murderer from the beginning. He seeks to conquer, to destroy, and to terrify. Uh, with the true God, he is life in and of himself, and he gives life to others. But with Satan, he only sucks life out of people which ultimately leads to death. Satan is a murderer. And then we see that he's a liar. Um, just look at his tactics. Uh, the Assyrians in these verses, they don't just go organs blazing to attack and, and destroy. No, they're actually very subtle. Um, so we see that the king sends his messengers into Jerusalem, <clears throat> and then they begin a very large propaganda um, campaign, uh, campaign, don't they? Um, you can imagine them, if it was today, they'd uh, be all over Facebook and Twitter, they'd have all their own accounts, they'd be writing articles in the national newspapers, um, paying for TV adverts, having their billboards, uh, messages put on billboards, to get their message of um, deceit and propaganda into the hearts of the people of Jerusalem to cause them doubt. Uh, what is their message? Um, ultimately, it is, give up now, you're not going to win. Give up now, you're not going to win. 
Um, one of my favorite TV shows is Star Trek, uh, particularly Star Trek The Next Generation. And you know in Star Trek that um, the Starship, uh, Starship Enterprise goes around um, and its mission is to discover new worlds, to boldly go where no one's gone before. Uh, well, one of the enemy races that they come across is this um, scary race called the Borg. And uh, their ship was kind of like the site a cube, which is a bit um, sinister, really. And the Borg were basically uh, kind of a, a race that were kind of half humanoid and then half computers. They had all these kind of cybernetic implants in them. And instead of really destroying people, what they did was assimilate them into their, into their collective, what they called. Basically, whenever the Borg came across an enemy, they'd assess them to see if they could defeat them. And then they'd say these words. They'd say, we are the Borg. Lower your shields and surrender your ships. We will add your biological and technological distinctiveness to our own. Your culture will adapt to service us. Resistance is futile. Resistance is futile. And that is basically what the Assyrians are saying here. Resistance is futile. You're not going to win. And that's what Satan's tactic is as well. His tactic is to get us to believe that lie so that we don't even fight. So we just slip slowly and quietly into despair and destruction. Well, what lies does he tell us? Um, I'm just going to read these out and see if any of them resonate with you. Um, maybe you're really struggling with a particular sin. Um, maybe um, an addiction to pornography, maybe. And you know that the only way to deal with that sin is to be open with other people about it. Open about your struggle so that they can help you. Well, in that, Satan will say to you, don't be open with others about it. If you're open with them, people will only condemn you and look down on you. Just keep it to yourself. He'll say, don't bother fighting against your sin. Just give up. You won't be able to change. Uh, your sin is too bad for Jesus to forgive you. You should just feel ashamed of yourself. Um, there's no point telling other people about Jesus. They will just dismiss you, and they will never believe in him. There's no point praying. It won't make any difference. God doesn't love you. If you obey him, you will just be miserable. You will not be happy. Well, these are all lies that Satan says. And he, he says this to bring us fear and discouragement. And it's in this kind of context that Hezekiah speaks verse 7. Um, I'll read it out again. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him. For there is a greater power with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. So what is your confidence based on? Well, it's in the fact that we have a great God. We have a great God. We have the Lord God on our side. He is with us to help us and to fight for us. But, but why is this such a good thing? Um, what is it about God that gives us confidence? Well, the answer might surprise us. Um, often when we look uh, for someone to help us, 
Um, we want to find someone who is like us, um, maybe someone who's gone through the same problem as us before and then come out uh, successfully on the other side. Uh, and that kind of helper can be comforting to us in some ways. But if we apply that same kind of logic to God, uh, then I put it to you that we'll just end up being miserable and hopeless. Now, our confidence isn't in the fact that God is like us, but it is actually in the fact that God is different from us. Uh, it, it is true that we are like God in some ways. After all, God has made us in his image, so we do reflect something of what God is like. But we need to also remember that in some fundamental ways, God is different from us. And our confidence is in the fact that God is different from us. Uh, and that's something that the king of Assyria did not understand. He underestimated God. Uh, and we see that in, in verse 19. Um, it says, They spoke about the God of Jerusalem as they did about the gods of the other peoples of the world, the work of human hands. See, if we look at all the, the gods of the nations, particularly in, you know, when the Bible was written, when this um, chapter was written, all the gods of the nations were really just maybe bigger and better versions of human beings, idols that look like human beings, um, they're just the work of human hands. And you can understand why people would have done that. It's kind of easier in some ways to relate to that kind of God. We feel like we can control what they're like. We see that here. We see that in the, in the stories of the Greek and Roman gods. Uh, they were just like really superhuman kind of characters. But really, they were just like humans in very, way, in very many ways. They had um, problems. They had flaws. That's what we do by nature. We, we create God um, in our image to be just like us. And it isn't, it's not just a problem out there. No, it's a problem um, that we can be tempted to fall into in the church as well. Um, think about whenever we say, oh, I like to think of God as dot, dot, dot. Well, when we're doing that, we are creating God in our own image. Uh, maybe we um, don't like a bit of the Bible, so we just chuck it to one side. Whenever we do that, we're creating a God in our image to fit in with our desires. Well, what we see with Christianity is that God, we don't create God in our image, but God creates us in his, in his image. And God is fundamentally different from us. In, in many ways, he's an entirely different kind of being from us. So first of all, he's, he's infinite. Um, there is no limit to his perfection. Uh, think of something that makes God perfect, maybe his love or his justice. Well, he is most loving. He is most holy. He is most wise. He, yeah, he, you know, he has ultimate truth, perfect truth in himself. He is infinite. But we are finite. We're limited. Um, God is eternal. We see that in him is no beginning or end. And obviously we're different. We've been created. Um, God is unchangeable. Malachi 3 verse 6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. But it's not just that God doesn't change. It's actually that he is unchangeable by his very nature. 
uh, just think if God did change, either it means that he was kind of lacking something in the first place, so then he becomes kind of greater than he was to begin with, in which case he wasn't God to begin with because God um, is perfect, he's infinite in his very nature. Or imagine if God were to change, maybe if he were to kind of suffer some kind of loss, he would become less imperfect. And that would mean he's not really God anymore. No, God is unchangeable, but we, we change day to day, hour by hour, minute by minute. And then finally, God is self-existent. Um, that means kind of he, he has all of life, glory and happiness and beauty, not from someone else, but in and of himself. He is not dependent on anyone or anything for his existence, his existence. And obviously we're not like that. You know, we depend on our existence from, from God himself. Um, now, this view of God might seem kind of quite scary, kind of quite uncomfortable, maybe hard to wrap our heads around. Uh, but I want uh, to put it to you that when we think about it, this is actually a great source of comfort to us. So, so just think about what these four things mean uh, for when we talk about God's love for us. Um, it means that God's love is infinite. It's an infinite love. We can't put any limit on it. Um, it's an eternal love. Just think about what that means. It means that God loved you uh, before you were born. And more than that, before the world even existed, before he created anything, he loved you. His love is unchangeable. It won't go up or down depending on what kind of day you've had, um, what happens in the world. No, his love is unchanging and unchangeable. And his love is self-existent. It doesn't depend on us. It flows from who he is in and of himself. And that is a great source of comfort. That means that we can build our life on God and his love for us. And we can rest secure in it. We know that nothing can ever change his love for us. Um, this is our God. This God who is different from us. This God who is infinite, eternal, unchangeable, self-existent. And Satan is no match against him. Just look at what happens in verse 20. King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah pray. Then the Lord sends an angel. He annihilates the Assyrians. And the king of Assyria goes back to his own land in disgrace. And he's killed by his own sons. So the Lord has victory. The tables have turned. Then verse 22. The Lord saved Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others. He took care of them on every side. God is victorious, and he saves his people and cares for us. So what about us? How does this apply to us? Well, God is with you, so therefore make sure that you're with him. Put your trust in him. Follow him. Make sure that you're with him each day in prayer and in his word. And um, when we think about the culture around us, you know, sometimes we feel very hemmed in and conscious of, you know, our differences. Um, maybe we feel threatened. Well, actually, I think that God's love and the nature of his love can transform how we respond to those kind of issues. 
you know, it's very easy uh, to look at all the change in the world and get very defensive, maybe feel very threatened. But because, uh, because God loves us, I think that really frees us up to engage constructively with the world around us, to truly love and serve others, uh, to truly engage and seek to transform um, the world for God's glory. And then God fights for us, so let him do the fighting. Um, let him do the fighting. We, we don't need to take things into our own hands. Um, I think that's particularly true when we think about church planting or evangelism and mission, those kind of things. Um, all that we need to do is let God do the fighting. And I think that means to just be quite simple with things, to just do what God commands us to do in his word. So that means, you know, the methods that we use are what God says. So we devote ourselves to prayer um, individually and when we meet together. We're to read the Bible um, together, preach it. We preach God's word to his world. And we're to worship together week by week, Sunday by Sunday. We're to sing his praises, encourage one another, share the Lord's Supper together. These are the methods that God gives us to build his church. And Satan hates it when we just simply stick to those. What he tries to do is to distract us from doing those things. Um, maybe to get us to try something novel, try something different. No, let God be God and let him fight for you. We have a great God. And then finally, a bit more briefly, we have a great king. Uh, just look at the end of verse 8 again. Uh, the people gained confidence from what Hezekiah, the king of Judah, said. Um, what we see in, the, in this chapter is that the success of the people, the success of Judah, is dependent on what King Hezekiah does or does not do. Um, so we see that, uh, you know, verse 1, Hezekiah was faithful. Um, we see verse 7 and 8, the king encourages his people. Verse 20, uh, the king prays for his people. And, um, yeah, we see that ultimately led to success because he was relying on God. But later on in, in chapter 32, we actually see uh, an episode where Hezekiah's pride uh, leads to God's judgment and his wrath, not just on Hezekiah, but on all the people. You see that it wasn't just Hezekiah that um, it affected. It affected the whole nation. But then we see when he repents, it brought restoration for the whole nation. We see that the people and the king are intimately tied together. And I think we can understand a, a bit of that uh, today. Like If we look at the, the world of business, um, think about a very large company. The C CEO of that company is really important. Um, and that's why companies will go to great efforts to get the right CEO in place. Um, sometimes we see a company kind of getting rid of a bad CEO and then they kind of give them a big payoff. <laughs> and we kind of think to ourselves, that seems really, really unfair. But actually, when we think about it, from the company's point of view, it makes perfect sense. You know, they're willing to, to do whatever it takes to get rid of the bad person even if that means giving them a, a massive payoff so they can get the right person in place because the right person is needed for the success of the company. 
Uh, and that's kind of just what we see here. You know, the king and his people, what the king does, say the people follow. Hezekiah was a good king, but he wasn't perfect. Um, we see, yeah, we see later on that he had this pride. We see even on in the start of chapter 32, some of what he did at, at the start, before he prayed, before he really encouraged people with God, he tried to do a lot of kind of things by himself, um, which might have been kind of wise human things to, get, uh, to do. But ultimately, at that point, he wasn't fully trusting in God. See, Hezekiah, although he was a good king, he wasn't perfect. So actually, Hezekiah points forward to a greater king, the perfect king, King Jesus. King Jesus is the perfect, good, faithful king over God's people. So Jesus' words bring encouragement to us. Jesus prays for us. Jesus leads us against the enemy and protects us. And Jesus is the man who is God. He is fully God. Remember what I said before, only the infinite, eternal God can save us. Only a God like that can save us. Well, the good news for us is that is true of Jesus. God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is infinite, eternal, unchanging, self-existent. And remaining fully God, he was born of the Virgin Mary as a man, fully human. He is the God-man who can save us and help us. Uh, when we look at the life of Jesus, we see uh, in the Gospels, we see a great irony. Um, you see, he was always good. He was always righteous, faithful, obedient. He deserved to prosper, to live under God's blessing and to receive all the riches that were given to Hezekiah. But instead, he was rejected. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was crucified. And what happened to him was really what happened to the king of Assyria here. Jesus on the cross was annihilated. But unlike the king of Assyria, he didn't deserve it. No, Jesus wasn't being punished for his own sin. After all, he didn't have any sin. No, he was being punished for the sins of others, for me and for you. As the prophet Isaiah says, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastisement that brought us peace fell upon him, on Jesus. And that's how Jesus leads and protects his people, by dying for us. And then he rose again. And because Jesus is our king, it means he is our representative. So when he died, we died with him. It's like we, we die to our old life of sin. We're no longer enslaved by it. And he rose from the dead. And that means we, we rise with him. We have new life in him. That is the good news of the gospel that we believe and proclaim. That's ultimately how Jesus defeats Satan. Uh, remember that verse from Genesis 3? He will crush the serpent's head, but his heel is bruised. That's what Jesus does. His heel is bruised. That's kind of what happens on the cross. But by doing that, he crushes the serpent's head. By dying and rising for us, Jesus deals with our sin problem. Uh, and that means that Satan no longer has any power over us. 
He has nothing to accuse us over. He has no grip on us anymore. So when we are discouraged and afraid, uh, let us remember where that comes from. It's because we have this great enemy, Satan, who hates us and wants to destroy us. But let us remember that we have a great God, a great God who is with us, who helps us and fights for us. Uh, And let us remember that we have a great King, Jesus, who leads us and protects us. So be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid and do not be discouraged. I mentioned earlier that we need reminding of these things uh, day by day, um, hour, uh, hour by hour. Uh, we need reminding of who God is. We need reminding of who King Jesus is uh, to live life um, in this strength and courage. And, and that's one of the reasons why Jesus gives us this meal to share together the Lord's Supper. Um, at least part of what Jesus wanted us to do is by taking uh, this this meal, as we take the bread and the wine, we remember who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Uh, we remember that his death is the thing that saves us from our sin. And his resurrection is um, the, the thing that brings us as new life. So what I'm going to do, I'm just going to read out uh, a bit from from 1 Corinthians, um, that kind of reminds us of what Jesus said to his disciples on the night when he instituted this meal. Uh, and then when we've done that, when we, when we sing, um, we'll take uh, the bread and the wine in here. Uh, just take it while, while you're singing, uh, while you're remembering what Jesus has done for you. Um, let me just read out these verses from 1 Corinthians. Uh, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this uh, this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray together. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you that you are the great God who is with us, who helps us and fights for us. Uh, And Lord, help us to remember... um, that we have this great enemy who seeks to attack us, to discourage us. Um, But Father, let us not be fearful. Um, Let us remember who you are. Let us remember who Jesus is and what he's done for us in his life and his death and his resurrection. And Father, I pray that you would help us uh, to remember the truth from your word this week, uh, that you would help us to store your word up in our hearts that we might be encouraged day by day. And Father, as we come to this meal, as we share the bread and the wine, uh, I pray that you would remember, help us to remember what Jesus has done for us. Help us to remember, remember his death and resurrection. And I pray that you would 
strengthen us uh, through that. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.